0: There's a poet, a rather good poet, who once imagined Adam's first evening in the Garden of Eden. So he described the scene in his poem as, as Adam began to notice that the sun was sinking toward the horizon, that the shadows were growing long, that the light was getting dim. The very first day was becoming the very first night, and if you think about it, Adam didn't know what to expect. Adam had only ever known daylight. And so the poet imagined that as day began to fade into night, Adam might have made some assumptions. Adam might have assumed that darkness would hide all the wonders of creation. That as darkness fell and night came, there would be no beauty for him to see. But Adam should not have been concerned. So here's what the poet said in poetic language. He said, Yet, neath a curtain of translucent dew, bathed in the rays of the great setting flame, the planets with the stars of heaven came, and lo, creation widened on man's view. So, what happened is that the sun needed to set, and the light needed to fade before. Adam could see the glories of the heavens opened up before him. Just think about that. Adam couldn't see the stars until the darkness came. And in much the same way, those who have a a desire to, to experience spiritual light must first know spiritual darkness. We need to know the pain of sorrow before we can feel God's hand of comfort. We need to know that the dark shadow of sin before we can see or experience the light of God's blessing. And so this morning, I want to take you to Matthew chapter five. I know we read Luke seven. I'll explain that in a moment. But I want to take you to Matthew chapter five, that part of the scripture we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a series of eight statements that Jesus made at the very beginning of of his public teaching ministry. This was how he began, formally began, his public teaching ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. There are eight of these statements. They each begin with the word blessed. Blessed simply means happy or having God's approval. And in these Beatitudes, what Jesus is doing is essentially telling his followers, I have inaugurated, I've begun a new kingdom. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he calls it. And these beatitudes, these statements, what they do is they describe the values of this kingdom. He's begun a new kingdom. Here are its values. So if the nation of Canada values diversity and we value tolerance and we value democracy, well, the kingdom of heaven, it values these virtues, these things that Jesus lists at the beginning of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. So let me read for you from Matthew 5. We'll read the first 11 verses and get oriented with these Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now when it comes to those beatitudes, if you want to preach those beatitudes, you basically have two options. You preach a sermon that covers all eight of them, or you go through them one by one. I've decided here just to focus on one of them, the second one of them. Jesus has just said then, in the first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He means to say... (coughs) that God's favor is extended to people who know themselves to be poor, to be spiritually bankrupt. And those spiritually bankrupt people come to God with empty hands. They don't come to God with hands full of all the good things they've done, all the great deeds they've accumulated before God, and they lay them before God and say, look what I've done for you. No, they come to God spiritually bankrupt. They come to him with empty hands and just cast themselves on God's mercy. So that's the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the second one, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Which means that God's blessing are extended to those who come with empty hands and a broken heart. And so this morning, we need to look through that, at that second beatitude, consider what it means to be brokenhearted. And we'll do that simply through three words. Brokenhearted, blessed, and comforted. So this is where we get to Luke chapter seven. And the reason I wanted to look at Luke chapter seven is because it so wonderfully illustrates this beatitude. You may have noticed that a beatitude is very small, just got often eight or ten words. There's not a lot to, to work with. And so often what we do then is look in scripture for where else this beatitude was illustrated in the Bible. And Luke chapter seven offers us a very vivid illustration of, of, the, of this beatitude of of being brokenhearted. So in that which John read for us earlier, Jesus has been invited to dinner at the home of a man named Simon. He's one of those. Pharisees that we read so much about in the Gospels. A Pharisee was simply one of the Jewish religious leaders, the kind of people, the kind of man that everybody else look up to as just really understanding the Jewish faith and then exemplifying how to live it out. Well, Jesus has accepted the invitation to dinner at his home, and he's reclining at table, as was done in that day. Very normal situation until something very abnormal happens in verse 37. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. That would be as weird in that day as it is to our day, just to be clear. This wasn't done at dinner parties. You just didn't bust into the dinner party and start crying all over somebody's feet. This is this is very unusual to us, very unusual to them. So everyone's at this table, and this woman just shows up. She's crying and crying so hard that her tears are cascading down and getting Jesus' feet all wet. And so they're wet. So what does she do? She lets down her hair and she starts wiping his feet with her hair. And then she breaks out some ointment and starts rubbing it on his feet. This is a spectacle. This woman is making a complete spectacle of herself. And so we wonder, who is this woman? What kind of a person would do this? Well, she's not given a name, but she is given a description. She is a woman of the city who is a sinner. How would you like that to be the description of you? Someday people are looking back on history and they're saying, yeah, oh, her, yeah, she's, she's that woman of the city who's a, a sinner. This is her reputation. Her, her reputation precedes her. She's known for her sinfulness, known for being a particularly sinful person. Why is she crying? So hard, what is is it that's driven her to this point where she's willing to become a spectacle and do this strange thing? We need to go to the story to find out. In the middle of all this disturbance, when it's clear that Simon is looking at this woman with a judgmental spirit and probably feeling a little self-conscious, this is his party and now this woman has come in and is causing a scene. Right in that context, Jesus tells a parable. So now we've got a story and another story embedded in it, we've got the story of this woman, and embedded in that story comes this parable. And, and this, this parable has three characters. One of them represents Jesus, one of them represents the woman, and one of them represents Simon. So verse 41, Jesus says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, it's maybe about 200,000 Canadian dollars around now. So one owed 200,000 dollars, the other about 20,000, 50 denarii. So you can pause right there. Two of these characters in this parable owe a, owe a debt to the third character. One of them has gotten into much deeper debt. It's a pretty, pretty simple story. Of course, this is a parable. It's not a true story. It's a parable. It's meant to teach a moral. It's meant to teach a lesson. So it's not actually about finances. It's about spirituality. It's about the spiritual realm. The woman is the one who owes the greater debt, but it's not a debt of money, it's a debt of sin. She's accumulated a great debt of sin, which means there had been a time in her life when she had found great joy in committing sin. She had given herself over to sin. She had embraced sin. She had just reveled in her sinfulness. Somehow, at some point in her life, she had... Um, she had become aware that she had accumulated this debt of sin before God. Like David, she had come to say something like, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Or like Isaiah, she caught a glimpse of God's holiness and just said, woe is me. Or like Paul, she understood her inner sinfulness and she said, wretched woman that I am. So this woman has come to know that she's accumulated a great debt of sin before God and that she's got no ability to pay it. She knows she'll be facing the consequences of this debt, the consequences of her rebellion. And so she mourns and weeps. The first beatitude promises a great blessing for those who are poor in spirit. It's no coincidence then that the second beatitude is for those who mourn. If you're poor in spirit, it makes sense that you would be sorrowful. If you're spiritually bankrupt, it would make great sense that you're now spiritually sorrowful. Empty hands lead to a broken heart. So this woman knows her spiritual bankruptcy. She knows she has nothing to offer God but her debt, but her sin. And it deeply grieves her. It causes her to weep. But remember, Adam Adam had to know the darkness of night before he could see the light, before he could see the beauty of the stars. And just like that, this woman has to know spiritual sorrow before she can know spiritual joy. There are still blessings for her. So if her first heading is brokenhearted, our second heading is blessed. This woman's spiritual bankruptcy is not the only reason she's weeping. Look again at her little parable, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. So we learned something interesting here. The two characters in the parable, the one who have both of them, have borrowed money and then squandered money. That's not the end of the story. They borrowed money, they squandered money, they could not repay it, and then their debt was forgiven. Now again, this is a parable, so it's a spiritual lesson. It's not telling us what to do with our finances, it's telling us how to live before God. So this woman knows that she's accumulated a great debt of sin, but she knows as well that that great debt of sin has been forgiven. She knows that she's lived an unholy life before God and that she deserves to face the consequences for that. But she also knows that all has been set aside, all has been forgiven, all has been settled. Not because she paid it back, not because she had anything to offer, but just by grace, just as a gift. And this realization, this overwhelms her. And so those tears of sorrow are mingled with tears of joy, tears of relief, tears of amazement. And all that because of the great, tremendous blessing she's received. And that's why I wanted to go to this passage. She so wonderfully illustrates what Jesus said in his beatitude, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, that's countercultural, isn't it? Society-wide, we don't say here in Canadian society, 21st century, we don't say, "Blessed are those who mourn." God's favor is extended to those who are broken-hearted. We say the opposite, right? Blessed are the happy. Blessed are the put together. Blessed are those who who don't feel God owes them anything, or they owe anything to God. But Jesus says, "Blessed are those who mourn." This woman weeps with sorrow over her brokenness, and she weeps with joy over her forgiveness I wonder if you know those tears if if at some point in life you've cried those kinds of tears tears that are sad and happy all at once the kind of tears that lament poverty but also rejoice in riches The, the kind of tears that confess sin and that just marvel at forgiveness wonder if you've ever gotten emotional you started to feel true joy and sorrow at the Lord's Supper when you're confessing your sin and you're considering Christ's sacrifice or you hear the gospel you think about the depths of of what you've done and you just hear about the, the great heights of God's grace or maybe you've wept those tears when you're singing you're professing in song I am a sinner Christ has forgiven me. We can cry tears of sorrow, tears of joy at the same time. And those kinds of tears, they come from the soul as much as from the eyes, don't they? Those are holy tears that God loves and treasures. But what concerns me is that very often we don't weep in that way. And we don't weep in that way because we don't feel that way if we have been forgiven a debt as large as that woman's or very near to it or greater than it why aren't we acting like she's acting if she was that brokenhearted that she would fall down and just make this huge spectacle of herself why don't we why do we barely even feel remorse so often well, in that vein, Jesus has a question for Simon in verse 42. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you've judged rightly. There's no trick question Jesus was asking. It's obvious which of these two people would have deeper feelings of gratitude. If I If I come to you after the service and I borrow your pen and I forget to give it back and you say... Don't worry about it. That's no big deal. I mean, I shouldn't have taken your pen. I apologize. But you haven't done anything great and magnanimous in saying, don't worry about it. I got it covered. But if, let's say, I go to your house after the service and I just, I don't know, play with matches and I burn your house to the ground and cause you great pain. And at the end, you say, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. Well, that's a much more extravagant display of grace. We're moved by extravagant displays of grace, not very minor ones. Could it be that behind our our dry eyes is actually an apathetic heart? A heart like Simon's that says, I've really been forgiven very little. Or I barely even need any forgiveness. See, the Beatitudes, as we consider them in Matthew 5, they don't just describe the entrance requirements to get into the kingdom of heaven. They describe the values, the values we live by. The values we're meant to live by as citizens of this kingdom that christ has inaugurated right here on earth so we don't just mourn our way into the kingdom but this is something we do as we live in the kingdom we continue to mourn our sin continue to mourn our sinfulness in fact i think our mourning sometimes gets deeper because we've seen the light and we've we've heard hundreds and thousands of sermons we've we've been studying the word for years and years and years and then we we still commit these ridiculous, petty, immature, childish sins. And we think, why can't I break free? Why have I been a Christian so long and in this way and that way? I'm still so far behind. So how can we come to mourn our sin like this woman? Now, I think our tendency, you kind of hear this in the Christian world sometimes, is the best way to do that is to sort of transport ourselves and our minds back to the days we were before we were believers, and just to focus our minds on those acts of depravity, to think about all the evil things we've done, and then just let these waves of shame wash over us. But can good really come ever out of fixating on what's evil? Is there really value in going back and remembering, fixating on all that stuff? What, why would we remember our sins when God has so graciously forgotten them, freed us from them? So i got another idea what if instead of considering all the sins of the past, what if we instead consider the penalty for sin? We consider the payment for sin. We consider God's efforts to keep us from sin. And we consider the joy that has been ours when we have fled from sin. So let's just spend a few minutes then to consider death, the cross, grace, and joy. Let's, let's learn how to mourn our sin together. Let's learn how to be brokenhearted before God. I, I want to teach you to be brokenhearted. I want to teach you to mourn so you can be blessed. So if we wish to truly mourn for our sin, there's no better place to begin than just considering the penalty for sin. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them everything they needed to live perfectly, sinlessly, and in this world. He held back just one thing from them. He held back only the fruit of one tree. That tree was the test of their submission. It posed the question, day by day, will we submit to God or will we rebel against God? And you know, you've read stories, you've seen movies, you know that an act of great heroism brings about a great reward. An act of great villainy brings about a terrible punishment. God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. To eat of that tree was an act of the, the greatest villainy. Therefore, it was an act that brought the greatest punishment. The penalty for sin is death. We don't like death. We flee from it. We fear it. We, we hide or mask its realities by using euphemisms to describe it. But if we want to know the true horror of our sin, we need to consider death as the just, the right, the appropriate consequence for our rebellion. You know, if the Bible says the wages of sin is a timeout in the corner, we could conclude, all right, well, sin's not that serious. I'll just serve my time, and that's that. But if the wages of sin is death, we need to conclude that sin is very, very serious. It's the greatest possible penalty because it stands there beside the greatest possible crime. Now, death is the unnatural separation of soul from body. Bodies and souls were meant to be united permanently. But in death, the body returns to the dust. The soul returns to the God who gave it. it wasn't ever meant to be the way of it. And while physical death is real and true and horrifying in its own way, it's a picture of something much more serious, something the Bible calls the second death. So death as we know it now, as we all experience now, it's a temporary state. At some point, Christ will return. Bodies and souls will be reunited. And for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, they'll be sent to hell where they'll suffer the eternal consequences of their rebellion. They'll just be given what they wanted. They wanted to rebel against God. They'll be allowed to continue their rebellion against God. For these, the first death is just the gateway to the second death, which is so much worse in every way. So do you want to mourn your sin? Do you want to be brokenhearted like that woman? And simply consider the wages of sin is death, the temporary death of the body, the forever death, judgment of body and soul, the wages of your sin, the sins you committed this morning, the sins you committed since you walked into this building, the wages of sin is death. Once we consider the penalty for sin, we can consider the payment for sin, and to do that we need to look at the cross. We need to look at Jesus Christ suspended between heaven and earth, between God and man. As the songwriter says, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. As a Christian, you need to behold that man. You need to look at him. You need to look at him to see what you have done and don't avert your gaze until you see your sin upon his shoulders. Christians have often made the mistake about making the cross all about brutality, all about physical pain and No doubt, crucifixion was an absolutely terrible, grueling, physical ordeal. But all of that physical suffering would have done us absolutely no good unless it had been accompanied by a much deeper, much worse form of suffering. Jesus' suffering was far more than physical. It was spiritual. For as he hung there, he faced God's wrath for our sin. He felt the fury of God The fury of God's wrath against all sinfulness. He faced the very judgment of hell. And he bore that wrath. He he, he bore it until God's wrath was expiated. It was empty. It was complete. And then, and only then, did he die. So if you want to mourn your sin, you need to look to the cross, but not first the the nails in his hands, not first the thorns pressed into his brow. You need to look to the cross through the eyes of faith and see your sin upon his shoulders. God's wrath being poured out upon him because of you. He's suffering your sin. He's getting what you deserve. How can our eyes be dry when his are just so full of agony? having considered death and the cross, we need to consider grace. And I don't mean saving grace at this point, but but God's grace described or shown in his, his ongoing work of protecting us from ourselves. If you go to the zoo, go to the lion enclosure, and you'll see that it's surrounded by signs and warnings and walls and fences. Why? It's obvious. Lions are dangerous. If If that pit was full of bunny rabbits and guinea pigs and cotton balls. They wouldn't need to warn people away from it. But lions are dangerous and lions are hungry. And God shows us how dangerous our sin is by warning us away from it, warning us not to commit that sin. If you consider just how many different ways God tries to keep you from sin? He warns you away from committing sin. To consider a few, God reveals himself in the created world so that the night skies, those night skies that Adam saw and we see, those skies reveal a God who is infinite. Uh, The mighty mountains, they they reveal a God who is powerful. The, The rising floods reveal a God who stands in judgment. God writes his law in our hearts, so each of us has some inner intuitive understanding of what's good, and what's evil. He gives us his law, revealed first in the Ten Commandments, then in the rest of scriptures. Those laws guide us away from sin. They guide us into righteousness. God gives us Psalms to teach us how to lament our sins. He gives us prophecies that warn of the consequences of sin. He gives us gospels to describe the perfect life of the perfect man. He gives us epistles that explain how to live for God's glory. He gives us the revelation to show us the future that awaits all of us who remain faithful. He gives us pastors to reprove and rebuke and exhort us. He gives us brothers and sisters who will confront us and warn us if they see us going astray. He arranges providence to interrupt our sinful plans you ever consider that how often God just arranges providence to steer you away from the thing you were going to do or or to expose your sins so now others can see it before you go beyond the point of no return best of all God gives us his holy spirit to dwell within us take up residence within us to guide us to teach us God's Spirit offers us a way through every temptation. He always provides a way of escape, if only if only we'll take it. You only ever sin because you've chosen to resist all of this, all of it. There's so many ways that God keeps us from sin. If sin led to pleasure, God would just invite us to indulge. If sin led to minor consequences, God might just recommend. You know, it's probably in your best interest not to do that. But because sin leads to death, because sin leads to hell, God goes to these great lengths to guide us away from what is evil, to guide us toward what is good. So do you wanna mourn your sin like that woman did? Then consider all God has done to keep you away from your sin. How often you've sinned anyways. How often you've chosen to ignore his warnings, to ignore his grace. When we consider death and the cross and grace, we should also consider joy. The joy that we have known when we did obey God. The joy we forfeited when we've not obeyed God. If we know the vileness of sin by all the way God keeps us from it, we know the goodness of obedience by all the joy that it gives us. Have you known the joy of obedience? Before we come to Christ, we believe obedience to God is the path to repression. Rebellion is the path to joy. That's what we believe as sinful people, but we come to learn that the God who created us, he's the one who knows how we can best live. He made us. He knows what the ideal God-honoring human life looks like. We realize true joy is found within the boundaries of his will, not outside of it. There's far more joy to be found in purity than in playing the field, more joy in earning a reward than stealing one. More joy and self-control than self-indulgence. So consider the joy you've known when you've obeyed God. Consider the joy that flooded your heart when you turned away from a sin. When you found freedom from this temptation. You had been fighting this temptation for years and finally you turned away from it. Do you know that joy? The joy that came? And consider how often you've missed out on joy you've chosen once again like a dog to its vomit to go crawling back to that sin and consider that if you've grieved your own heart your own sinful clouded heart imagine how much you've grieved the heart of god and mourn mourn for all the sorrow you've brought to your life and mourn for all the joy that you've forfeited blessed are those who are broken, broken-hearted over their sin. Have you asked God to break your heart? Again, could anything be more countercultural? Could anything be more against the, the grain of the kingdom of this world, which the the ethos of the nation of Canada than to pray, God, please break my heart. Please make me weep. Please make me grieve. Please make me mourn. Yet this is so consistent with the kingdom whose king says, blessed are those who mourn. Be wretched and mourn and weep, says James. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The humble will be exalted. The sorrowful will be comforted. And if you've not yet come to Christ, I'd encourage you to begin right there. Ask God to break your heart over what breaks his. The Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God honors confession and contrition, admitting your sin, being sorrowful for your sin, turning away from sin. So don't be afraid to have your heart broken. If you want to see the beauty of the night skies you first have to watch the light of day fade into the dark of night but when it does there's so much beauty to be seen beauty you don't want to miss out on so ask God to give you that broken and contrite heart God will not despise that request he won't turn you away in fact he'll turn to you and give you comfort which is our third heading comforted The woman in the story has been brokenhearted and blessed. She's wept tears of sorrow over her sin, tears of joy over her forgiveness. And now Jesus means to comfort her. Look at verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The great comfort Jesus offers that sinful woman is the comfort of peace. A deep soul peace that will go with her even as she leaves his presence, even as she lives out her life see what it was that saved that woman it wasn't her tears it wasn't her foot washing it wasn't her kissing it wasn't her perfume it was her faith she had come with empty hands nothing to offer a broken heart but with faith faith trust in Jesus trust that he had forgiven her all the actions she had taken those were the proof of her salvation not the cause of her salvation. And that very same peace can be ours. It can be yours and mine. We've, We've forfeited joy. We've despised grace. We've committed sins. We deserve death. We will die. We confess all of this. But God ministers his comfort to us through the gospel, which assures us we can have peace with God as long as we, like that woman, come with empty hands and a broken heart and faith. And then her sorrow and her joy will be ours. Her worship will be ours. The Apostle Paul says, though we are sorrowful, we are always rejoicing. Christians should be the most broken-hearted and the most joyful people in the world. We should be the most sorrowful, but also the most worshipful. It's it's like two streams can flow through a valley and never quite touch, never quite become one. And that's us living our lives grieving and joyful, mourning and celebrating. God's kingdom has a present dimension and a future dimension. And this is true of his blessing. So even as we receive God's precious comfort today, we're looking forward to much greater comfort still to come. The comfort that will come when sin and all of its consequences have been fully, finally removed. Sin's power was broken when Jesus died. Sin's presence will be broken when he returns. You can listen to this this vision of the comfort that's to come at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I hope you're in the habit of considering that day of pondering that day of fixing your heart upon it yes god will wipe away all the tears for your pains and losses and disappointments and bereavements all of that that's a wonderful thing we long for that day this life is so difficult this life brings so much pain so many tears but god can dry those tears only after he's wiped away the tears that come from our most fundamental problem which is sin do you ever picture god wiping away those tears there's an order to these things they must be first god will wipe away all your tears of remorse for all the sins you've ever committed god will wipe away all your tears of shame for your acts of defiance God will wipe away all your tears of mourning for the ways you've hurt others and harmed others. God will wipe away all your tears of regret that your sins are responsible for the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. God will wipe away all the tears you shed when you realize just how badly broken you really are. What a day that will be. What a day that will be when every tear is dried by God's tender, gentle hand. The ones who mourn today will be comforted fully, finally, tomorrow. It was only when the sun set, it was only when the light faded that Adam could see the beauty of the stars and the planets. And it's only when we admit our sin That we can receive God's forgiveness only when we weep that we can receive his consolation, his comfort. So blessed, my friends, blessed are the brokenhearted, for they shall be made whole. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, for you, shall be comforted. Amen. Let me pray for us.